no, 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 Johnny Norm over here, and on this podcast, we've got my buddy and greatest young guitar player, one of the most original guitar players I know. He works in the store, does our uh, Guitar of the Day episodes, has a tremendous following, has become a rock star in his own right, um, and an internet star. So that's Michael Lemo on this next episode. Everybody, do you recognize that guitar playing? That's our own Michael Lemo, king hey of the jazz master, and he's playing a 58 jazz master right now, one of the very first ones with a gold anodized pickguard. And that's always been Michael's guitar of choice. Yes. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Michael's uh, upbringing and what got him into guitar and all kinds of stuff like that. And uh, we just like to have fun here. We've got a few real professionals in the room. Uh, we've got a few guys from uh, the show The Neighborhood. We've got my buddy Max Greenfield. We've got Gordy and we've got Ron from the show. And they wanted to just see how it's not done. So we figured we'd show them this is why you guys are pros and we're not. But we want to welcome you guys to Norm's Rare Guitars podcast. You know, we always have a lot of fun here. And... Uh, so, Michael, um, we hired Michael. How long ago? How long have you been working for us? I was just thinking about that today. Um, it's been about two years, maybe. Okay. Year and a half, two years. And you're not sick of it yet, right? No way. Every day there's something new. Um, and also, I think since I've been working here, um, my guitar playing has expanded because I see so many different players every day. Um, and also, it's um, taught me how to talk <laughs> because I'm all in front of a camera every day. And uh, I think I always could play guitar, but the hardest part for me was the other part, um, being a performer and kind of an on stage yeah, personality. Yeah, there you off go. is not my favorite thing to do, but part of it you have to show them what you got. So, well, you know, I've talked about this before, but I, you know, my son Jordan actually was in the store, and Michael. Uh, first came in and he was playing and um i was in my office doing something i'm not sure what but uh <laughs> uh jordan came in and he says hey you gotta come check this guy out yeah. and i said yeah I'll, I'll be out in a few minutes and then jordan said no i mean you gotta come out now and so that was I, a whole series of events because <clears throat> i was um you know kind of finding my way i moved out to la kind of pretty in a raw fashion, not many leads, but I had a few. And uh, my friend Noah at the time, who I met through this photographer, Robert Knight, who shot Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan, he, would, he had this thing called the Brotherhood of Guitar, and he put together all these young guitar players. And it was like, the first batch was like 10 kids. 
and it was like me and like um, Brad Whitford's kids from Aerosmith. Really? Yeah. And I know um, Brad and I know <clears throat> Tyler Bryant was the leading kid really? that he found. Yeah, he had this documentary on. And my dad's like, there's a kid. I was downstairs in Pennsylvania. He's like, there's a kid on TV just like you. And it was Robert Knight's documentary. And he was all talking about finding a guitar players. And so I emailed him that night and he got right back to me. And, um, that's cool. and then that's how I met Noah. And Noah, when I got out here, he was the only kid in the group that sang and wrote songs. And I was like, all right, everybody can shred, but I'm interested in the kid who can write songs. And um, he brought me to norms he said you got to go to norms he's like just i said well what am i supposed to do he's like just play just play and they'll come up to you and it's funny so i was sitting well, they were there right yeah so it's funny so i full circle i was sitting there and he's like just go i'm like i don't know coming back to not liking to show off i didn't want it <laughs> you know but i was just like just do whatever and sure enough jordan came right up to me and i remember you coming up right after and then before we knew it i think we were doing the famous videos <laughs> and yeah. uh but uh yeah no it was um just an amazing thing it changed my life immediately because all of a sudden i remember people reaching out right away and actually from the first time we did a video i ended up in warner brother rec warner brothers uh records uh -huh. um, with julian uh julian, julian raymond who's julian a friend raymond, of ours, yeah. yeah so that was um in terms of music business that was one of the closest i got to getting signed by a major of course um the record industry is what it is he was let go or left within he moved month. to nashville yeah now he's at Big Machine Records, which is funny because he hired me this year. <laughs> and that the, was with Django Stewart, right? Yeah, Dave, Dave Stewart's, Stewart's son, son from the Arrhythmics. And um, I think for me, I've had a lot of really cool opportunities, but um, I always get really close, and I'm like, if the music's not there, I don't care about the other stuff. And I kind of, and there was a lot of situations where I got into some cool stuff, but I always kind of back out because I'm like, the music doesn't feel right. But that was a really good um experience to go down to nashville and record with django his dad is amazing you know obviously did all the synth work and all the music on the arrhythmics which it's funny i still say um what's the main hit um sweet dreams is probably yeah. the most played song i ever hear on every radio and, it, yeah. and he was just the coolest guy so i did that and uh yeah did a lot of playing around town but it was funny about how I got here. <laughs> well, and and Jordan and I were at a sushi restaurant, and we're uh, hearing these guys from this other record company talking, and they're saying, you know, um, this one artist, Alan Raymond, yeah. uh, needs a guitar player. And we were just eating, and we're sitting right next to him, and Jordan leaned over and said, I, I think I got your guy. And they're going, uh, excuse me? He said, well, we work over at Norm's, and, um, you know, we hear a lot of great guitar players. We got your guy. And he said, oh, really? And, yeah, uh, it's crazy when you think about it. An artist could only be so lucky to have a person like Jordan who's not, you know, he didn't have a, an official position of managing or anything, but he was certainly doing a good job. Well, he was aggressive he's enough. I mean, yeah, those guys, persistent. you know, when he leaned over and said that to them, they were going, you know, yeah, he that's didn't right. realize that he had heard what they were saying. You know, yeah, so. yeah, that's right. And uh, I remember... Um, he came back from lunch. He's like, we just got sushi and you got a gig. <laughs> yeah. So and, he ended up going out on the road with Alan. Yeah. Rainey. So it was very cool. Right after um, my first gig with Alan was Red Rocks and it was 10,000 people. And um, it's funny because they said when they watched the footage back, I never seen it. But like, you know, I'm, I probably before that I've played used to playing in front of less than 100 people. <laughs> uh -huh. So, uh, you know, I'd go up and they said I'd be like this, and I'd pick my head up and I'd be like, <laughs> every time, you know, the footage is just me freaking out. You the gotta whole time. pretend like you're in your yeah. living room or something well, you know, so it's you don't funny? get too intimidated. <laughs> it's funny because people kept asking me, what did it feel like? 
and on a daily basis, I feel not at norms, just in general, at very out of place in terms of just having a hard time finding my comfort zone. And that was the most comfortable I've ever felt. And it was 10,000 people. I think I looked up just because I was so excited, but I really, that, that experience was, um, uh, one of the most memorable I've ever had. And then after that, we went to all, um, Europe and we went all over Germany. We went to Berlin, Hamburg, um, Cologne, and then we went to Switzerland. We went to all over. And it was funny. Um, I'd stop at, I think it was the first spot was Norway. And then one of my favorite stories is I uh, turned the corner. And the guy goes, whoa, Michael Emmo. And I'm like, oh, cool. You're here to see Alan Raymond. He's like, who's Alan Raymond? And I'm like, what? <laughs> He's like, and it, my point is just, the the reach that I've gotten from Norman's Rare Guitars has been unmatched. Um, and it's it's crazy that um, all over the world, and then even in Oslo, I went to a guitar store, and they're kind of looking at me. And this I had only been working at Norm's for not even a year at this point. And uh, they're looking at me, and they're like, wait a second, are you the Lemo demo? And they gave me a bunch of free stuff and, you know, and, and – Where's my commission? I don't know. I missed that one. Uh, yeah, you did miss that one. Well, actually, he bought a few guitars from you. He was definitely a victim. Oh, all right. <laughs> That's what we call some of our customers. Yeah, like yeah. my buddy Max Greenfield mm -hmm. over here. He's a victim and a, a friend and a customer. <laughs> yeah, so, big victim. Uh, but anyhow, you know, what I kind of saw in Michael, which I really dug, was uh, Michael's playing. He's so rhythmic. And he does so many things that are different from everybody else, you know, when he's playing. Um, you know, a lot of guitar players can either blaze, um, you know, like fast solos or whatever. But Michael kind of combines that, the rhythm and the solos together. And that's kind of what we recognized in him that was so different. And doing a lot of this stuff, you know, a lot of people talk about sustain and hitting long notes and things like that. But, you know, equally important is playing some of those short notes and with the staccato and the muted sound, uh, do, do a little of that kind of stuff, something real rhythmic that's kind of got, uh, you know, that kind of staccato stuff happening. So you're talking about the pull-off thing? Yeah, you know, the yeah, stuff yeah, yeah, with yeah. The, kind of the muted notes, like the rhythmic thing. So you can kind of do it different patterns, but check it out. like to do a lot of stuff like this too like if you have a if you had chords in the background just stuff like yeah that kind of stuff i call it kind of tick-tock guitar playing you know it kind of sounds like a clock or something you know but it's really cool yeah we use it a lot and uh, one of the other uh, great players at doing that is Henny Hendrix. Um, oh yeah, he's and, terrific. And one of the reasons why I feel like when we jam, it works so well because he's kind of got that rhythm too. Uh -huh. And uh, but yeah, it's all about that and the melodies for me. Well, like uh, you know, when Hendrix played like tunes like "Wait Until Tomorrow" and things like yeah, that, yeah. there was a combination of this rhythmic thing happening with solos, and yeah, that's what made it so special. Thing. You know? I, I've really. It's funny because I went to Berkeley and they always told me not to use my thumb, but uh, that's kind of what opens that up for me. And uh, even Hendrix was known for doing that. So you can kind of play, you just keep strumming and you just pick them out. Um, really, a lot of muting with your left hand. So you're, let's say you're just strumming all the way. So you're like, yeah. And then 
then you can just. Yep. Just keep going, you know. Um, but yeah, just different techniques I've been working on. But I always love filling space. You know, like my uncle always would tell me about my guitar playing. He's like, one thing you definitely do is fill a lot of space. And um, I think like Steve Ray Vaughan and Eddie Van Halen and Jimi Hendrix, a lot of times they, they were the only guitar player in the band. And that's a lot of responsibility. And I always wanted to kind of keep that principle. Well, they can fill space and you can fill space, but also we're leaving some space open. Yeah. Which I think it's kind of a cool thing. Yeah. And I think that that's also part of it, too, is knowing the dynamics of when to stop and start. And that's all stuff I've been working on my whole life, you know. So, so um, you know, I, I, I want to talk about your upbringing and all that. I mean, your uncle is a jazz saxophone. Player, yeah. My right? uncle Bob, um, he, uh, him and my father were always into music and my father actually wanted to play guitar his whole life he didn't because he was left-handed and at the time in philadelphia it was well, kind of that was my problem too yeah. yeah yeah but he i mean i don't think it's a good enough excuse to i gotta t call him out on that one he should have went for it but uh but i think uh, all that angst maybe went into me and uh so you know um but my uncle plays um jazz saxophone but they were you know they always like actually my dad educated me a lot on my tone and how to Find how to use marshals because you know another thing too is using a marshal versus a fender is a whole nother art and it's because it's constantly screaming at you and so you have to have hand control and stuff and my dad for not playing guitar really taught me a lot about well he had a background in engineering and so he knew how he was always into trains and things that yeah. you know we had a good ear apparently yeah and he, he knew building stuff and so um yeah he really helped me out there a lot too and they they both Push me along with my musical influences. When did you get your first guitar, and what was it? Um, first guitar really, technically, was a um, just a little nylon string. But I would say my first really official was when I was eleven, and I got uh, just a black, like look like blacky um, Fender Squire. And uh, that's what a lot of people start on, yeah, right? Beginner guitar. Neck. It was so great. I got it at Sam Ash in Philadelphia and Franklin Mills, and it was the Fourth of July weekend. Because I remember I was looking at them, and it was. I, I'll say one thing though about it. My whole life, one of my earliest memories is always asking my mom about guitar, and asking like way before that. Like, and I remember even she had a guitar from her father, and I used to just sit out on the front porch. And this is one of my earliest memories. I used to just do because I couldn't press the the frets down, so I just do different patterns of the open strings like that. Uh -huh. And uh, so I was always obsessed with guitar, and even there's pictures every birthday. It goes from buttons to real strings, you know. Uh -huh. But uh, the Squire was my first, and after 11, um, it was no looking back. It was never looking back. You know, when, when I was a kid and when I was younger, um, you know, there were no Squire guitars. So there were, you know, Ks and silver tones and, yeah. uh, you know, things like that. Um, Which now have some that, value. Well, they have some value, but they really have to be set up properly if you're they ever going to yeah. learn on them because it was a struggle for most kids because a lot, a lot of people didn't even know what a guitar was supposed to feel like. Yeah. You know? And so if the action was real high, they thought, well, that's just the way it is, and you got to kind of learn to do what you do. You know, um, later on, you know, with these other guitars that were so much more playable with low action, you could actually do a lot of things playing up and down the neck. And, I uh, love Squire. I always yeah. said if I had a uh, if I was ever lucky enough to have a model, I would just do Squires because I think it's great. That's the best time to influence people, you know, when yeah. they're, right when they're picking it up. And uh, so I think Squires are, I, I love them. 
I just think it's a really cool thing. Well, I'll tell you, I was on a uh, Joe Bonamassa blues cruise, and I was really tired. I had seen a lot of music all day, and I was just heading back to my room, and I stopped by this one little bar in the uh, on the ship, and all these people were there, and this guy was absolutely killing, and it was Jack Pearson. Mm. And Jack was just great singer and unbelievable guitar player. Um, you know, he was... Uh, very well known to a lot of people, but I wasn't aware of him. And I said, who the hell is this guy? And I was just somebody that looked familiar on the, on the ship. And they said, well, that's Jack Pearson. And I said, wow, he's great. And they said, yeah, you know what he's playing? And I said, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a Stratocaster. And they said, take a good look. And they said, that's a Squire. Oh, yeah. And he was getting an unbelievable sound out of it. And, you know, it just goes to show you it's 90, 95 percent player. It's nice having good tools. But he really made the thing sound unbelievable. Yeah, some Squires have a certain twang to them. And I always say, like, my, my main guitar, people are always asking what year my jazz master is. I'm pretty sure it's like a 2012. You know, it's just about finding that right instrument for yourself. That's, that's a tough one. But if you do find the right one, it will take you to the next level. So it's definitely important. <laughs> well, Jack, I know, was, you know, did a lot of work with the Almond Brothers, you know, later yeah, Almond wow. Brothers. And he's, you know, just one of those guys in Nashville that he's renowned um, there. But he's somebody that I wasn't aware of. And when I heard him, he just kind of stopped me in my tracks. I remember you talking about him when you, when yeah, you came back. Yeah, just an yeah. amazing player and really, you know, honestly assuming kind of guy great singer too and you know um i was i was really impressed and uh, so but later on you actually went to berkeley right yeah so um when i was probably 15 was the first time i showed up at berkeley and i remember you had to be 16 to go to the the week program and uh that was when the relationship started my father sent them a bunch of cds and was like look i know he's 15 but will you take him now for the week program and they wrote back and were like yeah and uh so uh and i think i got a scholarship to the week program that time and then i went to um a summer program called the five week program which is something i suggest to all guitar players um or musicians um that was probably the best thing i did at berkeley um especially you get to skip the cold it's a summer program so <laughs> that's a nice thing there you go and also uh tomo was your yeah team, yeah right? so what happened was at the five week program um it's funny. I remember a guy telling me on the curb, "Don't bother auditioning, you know, for scholarships. You know, um, it's just impossible." And uh, at the summer program, I auditioned for the full scholarship or for scholarship for the full-on program to go to school there. And um, at the end of the program, they did a uh, they would announce, you know, by increments of the money. So like ten grand, you know. And so uh -huh. the last is, you know, so I'm holding on to the very end. And I thought I did well because they clapped at the audition I did. And all of a sudden, uh, they keep calling off money, and I'm like, oh, boy. And to the very last, they call out the full scholarship, and I got one. And, uh, pretty cool. Pretty wild, because I can't read a note. And, uh, <laughs> and well, it's kind of a myth about Berkeley. Um, but it's, it just goes to show you, you know, don't let anybody tell you, because you, you might have a shot. You never well, like know. when they tell you don't use your thumb or don't yeah, use yeah, uh, Rules are it. meant to be broken, and, yeah. you know, I mean, people break them, and that's how— new innovation comes yeah. about you know so, so then when i went there i met tomo and tomo obviously was known for he's john mayer yeah he's known teacher. for teaching john mayer and uh um but tomo really taught me a lot of stuff outside of the guitar and he was actually the one who suggested to leave berkeley and um and i was already having a tough time but he felt like i could do my own thing so uh 
I can't, that's when I came out here. So Tomo was a big part of me moving out to California. And uh, your idols, your one of your biggest idols was Eddie Van Halen, right? Yeah, Eddie Van Halen. So I used to cry about Eddie Van Halen when I was a little kid. I was like, there's not enough. There's Zeppelin posters, there's Beatles posters, but I'm not finding Van Halen. And then uh, I, I was just always obsessed. And I remember when I was little, the CD changer, I was going back because it was like Clapton or Jimi Hendrix. And I'm like, and then all of a sudden the CD flipped and the, it was Van Halen Greatest Hits with the gold. And Eruption was the first thing to come on. I'm like, those guys sound like they're sleeping compared to him, in my opinion, at the time. And uh, lucky enough, when I was 14 years old, freshman year of high school, um, he started dating my friend's mom. And I went over to his house and I hung out with Eddie Van Halen for two hours. And uh, he uh, was so nice to me. And uh, just the coolest. It was one of those things, to be honest. My dad calls it the Twilight Zone. But it was one of those things that actually made me believe in things. <laughs> because I was just, it was so out there. And he's from Holland overseas. And where I lived was Holland, Pennsylvania, in Bucks, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Woo! Yeah. It sounds like the Twilight Zone. Or it something. is pretty yeah, weird. And, uh, and, and, uh, just a meeting of the minds there, and uh, you know, so always so was a huge he encouraging influence. to you as a young man? Very, very encouraging. Um, which is funny because Eddie, you know, he's got a, a rough past sometimes, you know, when he drinks and stuff. But in terms of one thing, I really noticed about him when I met him, he was he was like a kid. You know, there was people in a good way, like in terms of he never grew up. He's a guitar player, so when people his own age came over like hey Ed, i remember seeing you in 80s like yeah whatever but when it came up to me and he could see my drive towards the instrument he just wanted to help it blossom it felt like so it was cool well that's really cool yeah I and mean, you know especially you know when you meet a lot of people when they meet their idols sometimes they're very disappointed yeah i've met yeah. some people that have been and i get it i mean look one thing i always have to remind myself is you never know what that person's going through even no matter what they do for a living and you know so but yeah i, I do think it, it's if you can put on your happy face it, it, it helps the younger the young ones a lot so all right. Well, you're doing that right now in Norm's Rare Guitars. I appreciate your uh, enthusiasm and, you know, being our Guitar of the Day host. I appreciate and, you, uh, Norm. You uh, changed my life. And, uh, you know, uh, I was about to, like I've said before, I was almost going to go home to Philadelphia and, you know, when things were getting tough. But Norm helped me. And uh, no, I said, don't go home, man. You know, yeah, come no, work for crazy. me. I mean, I knew that, you know, if he worked for the store and he got some exposure that people were going to go crazy for him. And people really love him, and he's, you know, Michael's really a good kid and really, uh, you know, polite, really nice young man. And, you know, that is really nice to see when you hear somebody who can play a lot and, uh, you know, they're not full of themselves. And uh, so you're humble. And Well, my know, mom I, said last time I was home, <laughs> and I, it stuck with me, it even stung. She's like, there's always someone better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I think even in music, it's not even about that. You know, I think if you find your own voice— you're not competing with anybody. Yeah, you know? there's no such thing as better because, I mean, it's apples and oranges. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, you get to a certain level of good, and then it's like for what you do, you're the best at what you do. You know, Joe Bonamassa is the best at what he does. Andy Van Halen's the best at what he does. Yeah. West Montgomery's the best at what yeah, he does. Exactly, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, they're all, you know, you can learn from every one of them, and then everybody kind of assimilates all these styles, puts them together, and then creates their own style. Yeah, that's the number one advice I always give out when people ask. I say, listen and play everything because there's such a big ocean out there. If you want to create your own sound, you better take a lot of ingredients and and mix them up. <laughs> yeah, make your own stew. Yeah, exactly. There you go. So, you know what we're going to do is we're going to take a little break so that you guys can um, hear 
who brings this to you. And, uh, and hopefully there'll be some people that are bringing it to you. And then we're going to come back with Michael Lemo. And, Michael, we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, just your career and, and uh, you know, just some of the things that you do and who inspires you and uh, who bought the first guitar from you when you did uh, your first guitar of the day. Uh, which was, yeah. uh, uh, your mind was blown by that and just shows you the uh, reach of what some of the videos do. So, Michael, take us out with a little bit of more music, something a little bit different than what you were doing you know let's break it up and we'll be right back Hey, everybody, go to allguitarnetwork.com or go to the App Store and download the All Guitar Network. It's free, and you get to see these podcasts for free the following week. The podcast will be on a Tuesday. The following Tuesday, you'll see the video at the All Guitar Network exclusively. back and it's uh with the great michael lemo and you guys by popular demand have said come on you know let's talk to lemo and get a little bit more about his life and how he got started and all that so we wanted to bring that to you so uh michael thank you and uh, uh, thank you norm as always so what what is it about the jazz master that does what inspired you first to pick up a, a jazz master that's oh, funny um I was first inspired by the jazz master when I was 14 years old. Um, and it was actually um, in like Pennsylvania and the tri-state area. A lot of big scene was emo music, <laughs> which is kind of like uh, bands like taking back Sunday and stuff. And, uh, and they were, they started coming. I basically, I always saw the jazz mis- jazz master in alternative music, whether it was emo or indie or and so that was my first exposure to it and i'm like that's different you know and so i remember talking to my dad same place i got my first guitar i'm like we go back to sam ash and i'm like 14 years old now i'm like i think i kind of want that guitar but i kept kind of i was afraid of it because i'm like i don't know anybody who plays it as much just other than friends and it it was just had different switches on it and then uh when i moved out to la i was 21 years old and in 2012 i saw radiohead for the first time and I already had this interest going up to the show, but I saw them in Santa Barbara, and they came out, um, and they were playing this record called King of Limbs, and Tom York and uh, I think it was Ed O'Brien, they both had white jazz masters, and they sounded like a UFO, and they looked like a UFO. And I was like, these guitars, this is the new thing. And, and I always played strats, but I always would do what i call um it was really famous at berkeley and we see it at the shop too it's not a bad thing but the 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 stevie ray vaughn itis kind of thing you know we just like yeah just go do all of his licks and that strat kept making me do that 
And uh, so, yeah, after seeing Radiohead in 2012, I got home. And um, actually, cool enough, too, it was one of the last guitars I went shopping out with my father, too. And uh, he was there. And, um, yeah, I, I had to get a Jazzmaster, and then I never looked back. First thing I did was I changed the bridge to a mastery bridge, and and uh, the rest was history. That's one of the things about Jazzmasters is that the bridge, um, you know, the strings can pop out of the they bridge. Can, yeah. It's in, in, inherent in the design of the guitar. But um, so this mastery doesn't affect the originality of the guitar, but it's a way to kind of create more tension so the strings lock into the bridge a little better. Yeah, and I think, too, that the Jazzmaster kind of had a resurgence, I think, in the 2000s because alternative music became so big because rock and roll, there was so much of it already done. And so people are looking for ways to think outside of the box. And I think that so the Jazzmaster, there's been more research done into it the second time around and people are figuring out the bridge is kind of having some trouble and stuff but i'll tell you when you switch that bridge i can literally hold my jazz master by the bar pick it up again and it's in tune you know and and uh and you can really beat them up and also the toggle switches started making changes for me like you can do uh like kind of kill switch stuff where you're like you know that kind of stuff and then the bells but it was just the main thing for me was it made me think differently. I didn't think to like, oh, I know this guy. I mean, the only guy I could really think of right away was Elvis Costello. Well, that's what I was going to say is that, you know, Elvis Costello kind of really kind of brought the jazz master back into prominence uh, where a lot of people were seeing a, a rock guy, you know, yeah. a pop guy playing, um, you know, a jazz master because, you know, they were kind of asleep for a while. Yeah, I, it, it's, it's really... Uh, a guitar that was asleep, and I think, like I said, if you go to, like, East L.A. or if you go to Brooklyn, where a lot of these bands are breaking, especially in Indian alternative music, you know, um, it's offsets, man. There's a lot of offsets that, that uh, and, you know, uh, you can't Wilco, say. Wilco, I mean. Yeah, Wilco, Nels Klein. Um, but, you know, the king of the offsets in a lot of ways um, for pre-2000s is Kurt Cobain. You know, it kind of set yep. up a precedent of. It's exactly what the name sounds like to me. It's just a little offset. It's like, you know what? And I think in rock and roll music, things had to be a little offset because so much has been done. It's been going on since the 50s. And so it's just something for inspiration. Well, if everybody used the exact same guitar and the same amp, everybody would have the same sound. So it's kind of cool that, you know, that opened up to a different thing. Like uh, there was a, a period where Gretsch guitars were sort of dead in the water. Nobody really wanted them. And then Brian Setzer started playing Gretsch guitars. And it showed people what those guitars are capable of doing. Exactly. And, and they, it was a whole different thing. Yeah, and I'm sure if you ask Brian, I mean, couldn't do that on a Strat and stuff. And the tone, I even saw actually Django's brother, first time I saw a Gretsch, he was playing uh, like that greenish color one. And it was just such a unique playing, such a big sound. And you're right. It's like, man, if he didn't have that, that guitar is part of what makes him so unique. And so, yeah, there, and another thing, too, is the tremolo system is unmatched to me. Um, strats sometimes can be a little stiff. And when I and they'll go out of tune sometimes on me where, um, you know, because like I, loving Eddie Van Halen, he would always have the Floyd Rose set up. But I I couldn't stand that because it's just you got to unscrew them, you got to untune them. But this bar is well, it's a longer bar for yeah. one thing, so it actually, you, you know... You can keep your hand on it while you pick, so right. you can do, like, wave chords, you know, um, or... But obviously, meant for um, jazz and became a surf thing where you get that 
really great tremolo sound. But yeah, it just just changed my perspective. And it was funny because I always try to go back to other guitars, and obviously I'm very spoiled um, <laughs> on guitar of the day. But it, it's I've really learned that the Jazzmaster. Um, has become my guitar. So. That's your signature. Yeah, it's my thing. Well, you know, again, a lot of the surf music, you know, was jazz masters and jaguars, you know, and, uh, you know, the jaguar doesn't really sustain as much as the jazz master, in my opinion. And a lot of people say, what's the difference between the jazz master and the jazz ma uh, j uh, jaguar? And um, they're both kind of those offset bodies, but the Jaguar is a shorter scale length and a little different pickup. It's got those and claw pickups. Yeah, and they they really are meant for not having a lot of sustain. You can get sustain out of them, but it's kind of, um, it's a different sound. Yeah, and like I said before, you know, I'm, I've been really practicing on being the only guitar player in my band, and I thought that the Jazzmaster, even compared to the Strat and the Jaguar, has a little bit of a lower frequency that I found um, that filled up space, you know. Um, so I just thought it had a big sound. It's a bigger guitar. I'm a I'm six four. I'm a pretty big guy. So um, sometimes I play a Strat and I feel like it, it feels like a fiddle. So I got to be careful. <laughs> well, yeah, and you know, it's just it's cool that you have you know your own different voice happening. Yeah, there, you know, so that you can relate to stuff. And, and you play Strats and you play other. I stuff love as them well. all. Yeah, you know, and so I love Gibsons too. That's why people collect guitars, and that's why when people say, "Well, I got twenty guitars," is you know too many guitars. And I go, you know what I call that? I call that a good start. Yeah, because. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's like having a bunch of different paintbrushes if you're a painter, and you know, some you need the thin stroke, some you need the thick yeah. stroke, and I'll tell everything you, does studio, something else. Yeah, especially in the studio, I use a lot of different guitars. I mean, the last time I recorded, I used just my Jazzmaster, but I've you've been uh, nice enough to lend me some stuff. I've used cornets, I've used Gibson uh, hollow bodies, Epiphone cornet. Yeah, Epiphone. it's like the SG equivalent. Great uh, guitar. I'll tell you, if you want to record and get an organic tone. Epiphone cornets straight to Epiphones the Epiphones are very much a sleeper. A lot of people don't realize that um, before 1970, um, the Epiphone guitars, uh, well, at first they were their own separate company, and then Gibson acquired them, and they were kind of a subsidiary of Gibson, but they were made in the States, and they were every bit as good as a Gibson, but a just Gibson had P90. slight differences. Yeah. And um, so a lot of people, when they hear the name Epiphone, they go, well, it's a Korean or Japanese or Chinese guitar or Indonesian. But no, not really. Uh, you know, there's some unbelievable Epiphones, and, uh, you know, I, it's always refreshing to me when somebody comes in and they ask for some of the cool old Epiphones. Like yeah, me The too. Epiphone Texans and the Epiphone Frontier. One of my favorites was the Crestwood. Crestwood's a A little great bit more uh, valuable, but those those uh, circle kind of inlays, oval inlays, yeah. are, that guitar looks like it's Well, then the feet. six on a side, like a Fender headstock yeah. on some of them. The early the ones are three, three on the side. And then the one with the the, the Silver Fox, is, that green is just yeah, one it's of kind the coolest of a colors. Green, gray kind of color. Yeah. And then there's um, the uh, Casinos, Rivieras, and Sheridans, which All are All beautiful really guitars. Cool. Those were like the 335 type, 330, 335, 3... 55 equivalents the epiphones didn't have stereo right uh but the uh so the In 345s ways, and 355s no a lot of people don't really like yeah, to some have people to are converting them, cord you know. but I, I those all those guitars right there are perfect examples like i found my jazz master those are all guitars that have so much to be discovered about them i still feel and that's why the opportunity is that's one of my point is it doesn't have to be a jazz master but it has 
to go for a guitar that you know you can find your own voice on it. And Epi- those old Epiphones, I see so much opportunity there. It's insane. Yeah, there, there are a lot of um, Gibson and Epiphone acoustics, like the uh, J45 and the J50, were the same guitar. The only difference was the J50 was a natural finish. The J45 was sunburst. The Country Western was a uh, natural finish, and the Southern Jumbo, which again it was the same guitar. The Southern Jumbo was sunburst. So an Epiphone had like all these other kind of things that um, were just different. Um, yeah. The scale length on some of the Epiphone guitars are different than the Gibson scale Exactly, length. yeah. So there's there, there's like slight different differences, and the scale length can make a difference in the sound. Yeah, and even the cornet body was, I think, the closest um, they've gotten to like a Strat feel almost. And I always thought that the Strat was such a comfortable body. I think that's why a lot of guitar players go towards it. But if you look at it, it's just like a Strat body almost, and then it's got the one P90 in the back. I mean, sometimes yeah. you can get two, but it's it's a it's an amazing guitar. You know, definitely something to work with. Yeah. Well, you know, again, it's it's finding your own voice. And and again, you know, talking about the scale length, um, Martin has. Uh, this thing where it's a triple O or an OM. And the difference being is the scale length. They're pretty much the same body, but uh, the scale length is different. And, you know, the longer scale length has a little poppier, like a little snappier yeah. type sound, sometimes creates more volume. So all these things kind of play into what the guitar sounds like and what is the sound that you're aiming for. Because yeah. everybody's got like a sound in their head, and they've got to kind of determine if that's their sound. So, you know, finding the right guitar for you as your main guitar and then having other guitars because, um, you know, when you go in the studio, it's really cool when you layer um, that's different guitars. That's another thing I love to do. I, I, on Guitar of the Day, I often use, for better or worse, a looper. And, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest arts in the studio is learning how to pair up different guitars. And, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, like you said, a Gretsch, I mean, that's where you find out these guitars do different things. I mean, you, you layer Gretsch down on even like a kind of a baritone line, or if you're just going like, and you know, you yeah. put that layer on and you're just like, that's why they did it, <laughs> you know? Well, Dwayne Eddy uh, yeah. used the Gretsch back in the early days Big and he went to too. a Guild Dwayne Eddy model, uh, which was really cool. And he did a lot of stuff that played off that open E string. Yeah, yeah, you know, he so. do kind of like that. Uh, just this. Just like those big yeah. sounds, and but man, you could tell he—it's he, huge sounding. <laughs> and a lot of open strings, yeah, yeah. You know, so um, boom, boom, created boom, boom. a and good very beats too, thing. yeah. So um, you know, again, it's just guitar history, and all you guys—if you're listening to this, you're probably guitar lovers. So I know this is probably geeky for some <laughs> of you people, you know. But uh, talking about the differences in some of the guitars, but um, so you and you have a band called Lemo. Yes, I do. How did you find that name? Uh, actually, <laughs> it should just stop there, but there is this little story. I actually had a singer who was, and he, it was, he was like, well, you're writing all the songs, but you don't sing. We should call Lemo. And, um, I was like, all right. I actually was uncomfortable with it at first. I was like, I don't know about that. And then, uh, it never changed. And then people just called me Lemo. And, and actually I moved out here with the band. That band at the time actually had split, has split at the, um, in the past but i uh have a new group together um it's been about two and a half years since my last show at the troubadour i just needed a break and it wasn't not like anything wasn't going right i just you know it's tough yeah i know you know you've 
pursued music, you know, as we've oh, always yeah. said, it's it's can one, be very disappointing. Can be very that, disappointing yeah. and it's very trying. And and uh, it's not like it's over. I'm actually, uh, you know, I'm playing my first show back at the Whiskey a Go Go. I got um, new members, and it feels so fresh. And you know, I think, like I said, um, for me, it wasn't the playing that was the problem. It was um, just finding my voice and being in my own skin and i feel like working at norms has helped me do that so it's time to play again so yeah lemo is still going and back on and uh yeah it, that's one of my biggest passions i love songwriting i love um you know because it ultimately comes down to the song so yeah we're gonna have some fun with that well like you know for instance the jeff beck group uh jeff wasn't the singer it was Rod yeah, Stewart yeah. back in the day uh, like on the truth album and all that so it was kind of unusual because people who didn't know in the very beginning thought jeff beck was the singer but yeah he wasn't it and was then Rod. i realized obviously the parallels with van halen you know the band was his last name and he he, didn't he sing wasn't the singer either. yeah so, <laughs> so uh go. but yeah so i'm just gonna go go for that and you know i got new following that i've never had before and uh you know, I can't say enough what it, how much in this business, it, how important it is for somebody to help you and give you a nod. You know, it's funny. Like I, I've been playing this way for a long time, but um, since Norm and and the rest of the staff and everybody's given me an opportunity to actually step on a stage where people can notice, it, it has changed everything. So I can't say enough about you know you. You, it's hard to do it alone, man. You you need help and you you need people to. So it's funny now that I have the stage, things are kind of working. So I yeah, well, that. I mean, it's giving you the confidence to speak and do to all the other things and, also, and to be the personality that yeah. you are now. And, yeah, you know, people like it. You know, I mean, people like to know who you are, and that's why we wanted to do this. And you know, we've been doing these podcasts for a little while now, and people are going, "What about Lemo? What yeah. about Lemo?" So you know, I figured you know I'd give you like a solo one here. Well, I appreciate so that it, and I love them. They're they're amazing. Um, Talk about feels like family. I've had my uncle Bob, my aunt Janet, my father Mark, my sister Anne. Um, I got my brother Tom and my mother what about Christine. Your mom? My uh, mother Christine. Uh, I was yeah, just gonna say. Uh, yeah, well, because Tom, Tom and Christine have not been on uh, the guitar of the day yet. But I'm, my point was is that the, even the fans know him. It's so funny when people come up to me and they're like, "Yo, how's Uncle Bob?" I'm like. What the hell is going on? How do you know on? Uncle Bob? Yeah, but, you know, it's it feels like family now. And, uh, you know, another thing, one of the hardest things about um, pursuing music is uh, traveling and being away from your family. And I feel like I've got a, a, a new family here. So it's, it's, it's well, been absolutely. amazing. We all love you. And, you know, um, it, one thing, uh, you know, Michael's from Philly and um, so Philly and Atlanta. I am too. And one thing that's kind of cool is uh, Michael was back and he went to uh, Atlantic City and there's the White House subs. Some of the best and that's ever. Like, uh, that's like the most famous sub shop in the world. Yeah, it's great. It's and, a, another one of those uh, mom and pop shops that's been doing it forever and you know, they're, they're pretty jaded and rightfully so. They got the best sandwiches so my dad goes up to him he's like, hey, you know, uh, we get some shirts. No, we don't have them. Well, it's for Norman's Rare Guitars. All right, we got them. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it's really cool that they uh, supported us. And they got a really cool p uh, picture when you walk in there. It's like one of the only pictures. And it's the Beatles holding a huge sub. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and it's all four of them holding it. And, uh, you know, so the Beatles have been there. And uh, it's just a, a, a really uh, great tradition in, in Atlantic City. And uh, also people always think about the Philly cheesesteak, but you got to go to Jersey. <laughs> well, I, when I was a kid, um, I lived part-time. I was born in Philly, but we had a place in Atlantic City. 
And Atlantic well, City, Ave, right? That's right. Atlantic City was known for the diving horse at the Steel Pier. They used to make this poor horse wild. go all the way up these stairs to the very top, and there was no backing down. The horse had no choice but to jump off with a rider, and it was a long way down into this swimming pool Jeez. thing. And it was, I mean, it was a little heartbreaking to watch the horse, but horse, there was no. He couldn't walk down the stairs. Once he got up there, he was he was screwed. Well, outside so, of Vegas, you got Atlantic City. Yeah, <laughs> well, know? that stopped. I guess the place. animal rights people put a stop to that. There was the White House subs. There was Mr. Peanut, which was another thing. Casinos was, are a big thing, yeah, obviously. Now, now they are. Yeah, yeah. So um, Atlantic Lucy City Lucy the Elephant was, and Margate. All yeah, cool stuff. that's right. So, uh, you know, all these things from back home, you know, they bring back memories. And, uh, you know, it's nice to have Michael and, you know, when my friend Rick Vito is from Philly. Yep, Rick, Frank Stallone is from Philly. And, yep. you know, so, you know, we, we talk Philly when, when these guys are around. And, uh, or as you know, Frank would say, Philly. Philly, because, you know, the guys from Philly, they can't uh, pronounce can't an do L. R-Ls. Yeah. That's all right. It becomes a W. Philly. So, go Eagles. Go Birds. But anyhow, I just want to say, Michael, thank you so much for doing this. This was by popular request. People kept saying, Lemo, Lemo, Lemo. So um, I wanted to bring you to the people and get them to know you a little bit better, too, just talking about your past and your family and uh, your new family here at Norms. And I want to thank you guys for listening to our podcasts uh, at wherever you get your podcasts. And then remember, you can see the podcast, the video of the podcast for free at the All Guitar Network the following Tuesday. So um, we're doing them and we've got a whole bunch of them in the can. Um, you know, I can't thank all my buddies from Vince Gill and Joe Bonamassa and Don Peak and on and on. I don't want to, Rick Vito, I don't even want to uh, leave anybody out. But we've done a lot of them that we have in the can that we're going to be putting out for you guys. And thank you guys for your interest. And please, uh, you know, watch the podcast on the All Guitar Network. Again, it's free. You got a money-back guarantee because it doesn't cost you anything. <laughs> so, Trickery. Michael, do me a favor. Take us out with something, something a little good. different. All right, here we go. Michael Lemo. Rawhide. Get him, Rawhide. <laughs> this is before your time. That was a TV show. So Norm's always educating me. Yeah, on, on the old days, the real old days. The great Michael Lemo. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, Norm. So folks have asked, you know, can you kind of explain what the guitars are that are being used in the podcast? And so this guitar, Michael, that you're playing is a very early Jazzmaster guitar. It's The neck is dated 12 December of 58. So that's 58 was the first year for Jazzmasters. Tell us about what the features are on this guitar. It's just an amazing guitar, yeah. So it was introduced, obviously, in 58, the summer of 58 NAM. So 
in mid 59 this would have been a tour to show guard so it's it really is kind of a some pride to have that anodized guard um but it, it's it's just beautiful it's got the rhythm selector um obviously you have your amber switch and uh you got your soapbox pickups the bar works perfectly um just an amazing guitar and the condition is just absolutely gorgeous and it's a slab neck which slab, means yep. it's a thick piece of rosewood it's the first um of the rosewood necks the fingerboards are about twice as thick as the later rosewood ones that were coming out in say 63 64 and on and they have a curved extended lamination at the end of the uh, just past the nut of the guitar so that's really cool and then uh what it also has that's kind of really cool is this um, switch up on top. Um, when it's up in the up position, it activates these two roller knobs for volume and tone. Yeah, and you kind of get a jazzy tone. It's almost like having the, the highs cut off a little bit of a... Uh, here, let me show you. I like to do a lot of like West Montgomery type of stuff with it. So you... And it's then what's moody sound. it's moody and but also like if you were playing rhythm in that up position mm -hmm. and you wanted to set the volume to say medium volume and then when you're ready to solo you want the volume to boost without having to turn the volume knob you, you can just, just switch it. put the switch down and that activates the bottom volume and tone control which basically just works like a Les Paul you know you got your two pickups and then you have your neck both and bridge so it's 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 not as complicated as you think, and you can use the rhythm selector if you turn the volume all the way down. You can use it as a kill switch, all different things. But I, I really find that that rhythm selector is super useful. It's pretty clever wiring, actually. You know, um, the Jaguar has more buttons and stuff, and does a few other things. Right. Uh, but this is simplicity in its most uh, prime and best form, and I can understand why people would like that because it really uh, sets you up to be able to do a few things very easily yes. and not have to think about too many things while you're playing, especially if you're concentrating on a rhythm pa passage and then all of a sudden you want to go to your solo, you just press that one button down and you're ready to go and you don't have to mess with knobs and other stuff. That's right. So this is a 58. Um, we know the neck was dated uh, 1258. Um, there could be um, some early 59 stuff there because a lot of the times the necks and the bodies were made um, at a slightly different time. They shouldn't be too far off. So, But the neck is dated 1258, so I'm calling it a 58. And it's one of the very first jazz masters, one of the coolest Fender guitars ever made. And the best this is I've a, ever played, if and, not. And this one. is a great <laughs> example of one. So there you have it. That's what we were playing. Cool. Thank you guys for listening. You can get us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us a good rating. We could use it. Thank you very much.